Hi, dear listener. Zach here. I'm proud of the work we did on Call of Discovery and Keyforge Public Radio, and last year I took my love of podcasts full-time with my company, Rooster High Productions. If you know someone with a business who wants to broadcast their expertise through podcasts and derived social media marketing, send them my way to Zach at RoosterHigh.com. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by ManaCrest, a new digital and physical trading card game live on Kickstarter right now. ManaCrest will be releasing in quarter one of 2020 on Android, iOS, Mac and Windows, and of course on paper. Check out the new Kickstarter at manacrest.com forward slash Kickstarter. Welcome to Call of Discovery, the podcast where we celebrate Keyforge, its community, and the excitement of discovery. I am somehow still here as your host, Ed Pocock, and today we are joined once more by fellow Archon, Zach Armstrong. Zach, welcome back once more to the pod. Thank you so much, Ed. I'm happy to be back. And today we are going to be diving into our deck discovery. This is where our guests are invited to share a deck from their collection. But it is not just any deck. This is a deck that is surprising, unusual or spectacular one or many things of the above there and today we are going to be talking about what is it called zach bishop of giant way kingdom is the name of the deck i've brought today i think we can both concur that this is an absolutely exceptional name for a deck <laughs> indeed indeed i regularly type in giant way kingdom to see what friends and family members this deck has out there in the wide world Absolutely, absolutely. That's <laughs> I haven't thought to do that with some of my decks before. You never know what you're going to find, <laughs> do you? It's true. You can discover this deck along with us as there is a link to Decks of Keyforge in the show notes. This will take you to Decks of Keyforge where you will be able to look at the cards, see how this deck works as we talk about it. So there's a bit of a story that goes with this deck, isn't there, Zach? And for people that maybe missed our last episode, please tell us. So I heard about Keyforge coming out through the Fantasy Flight Games announcement, was instantly on board. I am all over Twitter. I tweet fairly often, and I decided to be interacting with uh, everyone talking about Keyforge, trying to be very positive, talking up the game as much as I could as it just seemed like a great paradigm shift for card games. Eventually, the Fantasy Flight Games social team through Asmo Day noticed just how much I was interacting with them, being positive, and I had seen they had sent decks out to a few people here and there. And they ended up reaching out to my uh, fiancé, now wife Megan, and reached out to her and said, hey, we would like to send Zach some decks. If that's okay with you, could you share a place for us to ship them? To him, And she said, I'll do you one better. How about you send them to me by X day and I'm going up to see him and I'll take them with me and surprise him with them in 
person instead of him getting them randomly in the mail. That has that turned into a very entertaining video as I was completely unaware I would be receiving Keyforge decks. I believe I posted it to Twitter. You can find me at, at Zach Armstrong. Uh, 88, Z-A-C-H Armstrong 88 on Twitter, where I shriek a bit as I open a box. I see those lovely red Call of the Archons boxes, and I am in complete and utter disbelief for a full minute as I process what has just happened as I received two Keyforge decks. One of them was the Concrete Mother Chef of Freekeep, <laughs> and the other was this most precious deck, the Bishop of Giant Way Kingdom. And for those of you that didn't go out and seek that video after our last episode, it is definitely worth a watch. We will have a link to Zach's Twitter as well in the show notes. And let's dive into this deck. So we've got a lot to talk about here. For a start, this is a Call of the Archons deck that we are talking about that does not include Dis and or Shadows, but still is very very much worth our time talking about so zach what are what are the highlights here the highlights here we can start with some of the standard highlights and untamed people won't be too surprised by we have the two hunting witches the two power creature that says every time you play another creature gain an amber so a great way to generate amber quickly we have a witch of the eye three power creature that has reap return a card from your discard pile to your hand so you can play anything in your discard pile play an untamed action twice we also have chota hazri three power with play lose an amber if you do you may forge a key at current cost all uh relatively useful powerful creatures and then what really makes it annoying is we have in triplicate the card regrowth the action card has one amber pip upon play and it says play return a creature from your discard pile to your hand so if i manage to get a hunting witch or a witch of the eye out and you take it out i'm really not too worried because as soon as i see a regrowth and perhaps save up a few other cards in my hands that creature is going to be right back out perhaps with a fog bank uh, perhaps with a fog bank to protect it as well so a lot of ways to keep some very annoying powerful creatures out there on the board it really is just a great way of keeping those creatures coming back and almost playing out your discard pile. Mm-hmm. It's very true. It's very true. I can pick anything I need from the discard pile. 90% of the time, it will be an untamed creature. Uh, sometimes I am digging for a Mars creature. Never really Brabnar creatures, but sometimes I do dig for a Mars creature if I'm uh, trying to make a long play. So very, very handy. I love that choice. Every time I play Regrowth, I have to make a choice about what to bring back and what my game plan is long term there, which is just so fun to be able to make that choice each time. So we've spoken a bit about the houses in this deck but what roles do those houses play within this deck? Is there one house that hogs the limelight that you maybe play a bit more? Have you got a supporting house that very much plays that role of supporting another house to shine? And, and Or do they all share the limelight? Well, I would say in this deck, the deck that steals the limelight is untamed, but that's because the Martians are filling the theater for the coop is what they're doing. <laughs> what happens is... It's a very Martian thing it, to do, it isn't it? It really is. So what happens is I will often be distracting the opponent by playing Hunting Witches, playing Witch of the Eye, Mermook, all this sort of thing, and they have to make sure they're staying on their toes to get rid of those threats. That usually allows me to continue to play out my Mars creatures. Um, I have a good number of them in this deck, and as I play those creatures out, uh, they do two things. One... They become the more powerful, the more of them I have with John Smith being able to ready other creatures. Uh, you look Megamouth being able to use creatures of other houses. 
And so as they become more and more of a board, I get to reap and use these special abilities more. And then once I draw into my key abduction, the action card that lets you bounce all those Mars creatures back to your hand and then forge uh, at a high cost, but minus one for each of the cards in your hand, all of a sudden I'm forging a key for a very cheap if I've had at least three or more Mars creatures out, which they can usually live if those untamed creatures are doing their job as the distraction for the first couple turns. Absolutely, so everything playing a role in the in the grand strategy there. Yes, and the Brabnar probably has the most interesting role. It only has a small number of creatures, uh, about five, which is not a lot. They all do work each time one shows up. It is usually slamming itself into the other battle line to make sure that it's tougher for my opponent to uh, answer my board. And it has exactly a few things. Exactly what you want and need from a, a Brabnar lineup, slamming creatures into other things. Yes, indeed. And it, it has two cards, which at first I thought were relatively dead cards, but yep. have been surprisingly useful. Um, Brothers in Battle and Follow the Leader, both of which allow creatures not of the active house to fight, which at first I thought was not very useful in this deck. But enough of these creatures have fight or reap effects. Uh, well, fight effects mostly. Most of these creatures have fight effects that trigger something special that that actually becomes very useful. Yep. Tunk will get healed fairly soon because he gets healed whenever another Mars creature is played. I can do that to unstun the Ixlix Dominator, which comes in stunned. Zizix the Many can gain power on a fight by showing and archiving a creature. I can do that uh, twice if I have a John Smith out. The Grabber Jammer captures one on a fight. So there's really a lot to do when I drop... Uh, either of those cards, which was awfully surprising because typically those other houses don't fight a whole lot. Yeah, a number of options there, a number of options. And, and interesting to hear you say that. There's one card here that looks to me like it might be a little bit of a dead card, but at least you get an amber pit for it, and that is Unguarded Camp that generally relies on you having a slightly higher creature count in Brobnar. That's true. That often does not trigger for much amber. I cannot generally rely on that card to be capturing. Sometime I can, but it totally depends on the matchup and how my opponent has been playing out their board. But these creatures I have are such threats that they usually get taken off pretty quickly by, uh, by a player who's been watching what's been going on on the opposite side of the board. And you have in, in Mars, you have an Aether Spider. This is the seven power beast traded card that deals no damage when fighting but each amber that would be added to your opponent's pool is instead captured by it is this a elaborate uh, diversion in your deck to divert your opponent's attention from the uh, the the wider strategy or is this an end in itself it is it is a diversion um, but it can be a powerful one if they don't have a way to remove it and i put yep. the uh, or Yixel, the Dominator. I won't even try to say that first word. The Dominator, which has... I still, yeah, I'm, I'm still not there either. This has been out for a year. And uh, for those of us, for those of you listening in, in a year or two's time to this podcast and seeing us struggle with this, I'm go back to Call of the Archons, look at some of those Mars cards and mm -hmm. see how you get on pronouncing them. They're fantastically <laughs> difficult. Um but when the Aether Spider capturing all that amber is next to the Dominator, which has nine power, one armor, and taunt, so its neighbors can't be attacked, if my opponent doesn't have a way to deal seven damage outside of a fight, 
or bounce it back to hand, that either spider can delay them for several turns, which is usually yeah. all I need to grab a few powerful untamed cards to start uh, getting more Amber Burst out there. At that point, I usually have a Hunting Witch in the discard pile and a regrowth in hand. So it is a, quite a good distraction, that Aether Spider, and a necessary one. Not a not a flimsy distraction, but one that really threatens the opponent if they can't answer it. So what in the way of Amber Control do you have in this deck? Do you have ways in each house, if you're behind, of, of coming up to speed, or is this something that this deck maybe struggles with slightly more? This deck has a little bit of Amber Control but not a lot. It's got a little bit in each house, which is good. Uh, nothing nothing that will capture a ton of amber, except for, of course, the aforementioned Aether Spider. I have a few ways to increase key cost with the Mermook and the Grabber Jammer, which are both creatures that give a plus one key cost, as well as the Jammer Pack, which is an upgrade that gives a plus two key cost. Over in... Brabnar, we do yeah. have uh, we do have Bumpsy, who on play makes the opponent lose one yeah. amber, and War Drummer, who bounces him back to hand to drop again. So it is all about balancing using that amber control, because if the opponent's going very fast, I can only amber control a little bit, so they'll get ahead of me. So what I need to be doing is threatening them with my own speed and using the amber control only when needed. We also have the Ritual of Balance in there, an artifact that says action if your opponent has six amber or more, steal one, which is very handy to just get me that one extra amber I need perhaps to use Chodahazri to cheat a key out or uh, threaten to forge a key on my next turn. Absolutely, absolutely. And I've had that experience as well. It's a persistent card that... Uh, maybe even isn't your most important artifact to be gotten rid of if from an opponent's perspective. Does some work. It does. It certainly does. It certainly does. The fun thing about the deck and its amber control and distractions are that it's a careful dance. If the opponent doesn't deal with the threats I'm presenting, they can often do some very powerful things. Yeah. Um, and I need to dance between putting out my threats and using my Amber Control at just the right moments. Uh, this is not a deck that will just beat any deck hands down, but I know it well enough that I can pull all these levers in just the right order in particular matchups to uh, go for my best chance at victory there. Absolutely. And that emphasizes there the importance of getting reps on decks, actually practicing with them seeing how they perform against the different types of decks that you're going to be seeing in the meta. So, Zach, what are the most memorable moments you've had playing this deck? Some of the most memorable moments I've had playing this deck would be realizing that this deck had a higher skill ceiling than I could fill early on. What I mean by that is that this deck can be very, very good and very powerful. However, for a long time, I did not have enough skill to operate the deck at that level. And this is the deck that taught me that. I was had the privilege of telling that story a bit. In the first episode, my practice partner Asher and I kind of discovered that together when we came back from Vault Tour Atlanta. We sat down, we played with a few decks we had, including this one, and we were much better than we had been at the start of the game, of course, and we hadn't played this deck for some time. So when we played it again and it just began to win against multiple other decks, we cycled through some other decks trying to beat it and then played an adaptive match with it. And that's when it kind of sank into both of us that decks in Keyforge are very deep. You need to spend time practicing with them to see how good they are. You might have one that's very good you didn't realize, or you might have a deck that's very good, but you need to be practice with it and just learn the cards and learn the matchups to really perform well with the deck even if it's unassuming 
even if it's unassuming. And uh, so I credit I making that discovery with this deck was very special as it was uh, one of the first two I got from, you know, from the, the story at the beginning of the podcast here. And for it to be the deck through which we learned that lesson was really something special. You always get an attachment to those first decks you open, whether it be of the game overall or in any given set. Looking at your little deck list here, I'm seeing there's a coward's end here, useful for if you feel that you're behind on board, you might see a, a way of gaining that. But the, the downside, of course, of coward's end is gaining three chains with it. And talking about player skill and improving as a player, I know for me, this is one thing that I've only recently truly got an appreciation of, and that is how to understand the efficiency of a deck. How fast does it play? How fast does it need to play to to get out its threats and to, to essentially win you the game? And Coward's End is one of those cards that I have alarm bells around that I need to measure. Is this going to damage my efficiency? Is this going to have unforeseen ways of uh, stalling me and holding me back from from gaining the momentum needed to win the game? So how how does this deck do efficiency wise? And is Coward's End a real risk reward play or is it quite often a no-brainer? Hmm. It is the reset button when the deck is in over its head regarding my opponent's battle line. If they have a Brobnar Sanctum battle line or something similar where they are able to take out my creatures without having to lose many of theirs, uh, that's the panic button I hit to try to reset. I am not fighting often with this deck unless my creatures can take out theirs in one hit, like Tunk or Dominator, um, or especially Mushroom Man, who gets plus three power for each unforged key you have, which is really lovely. Um, yeah, so a very much an underrated card there, I think. It is, especially in this deck, which uh, needs all the heavy hitters it can get. So that being said, I am not often leaving damage on my opponent's creatures because I'm trying to just take them out in one hit and just remove them strategically as needed. So Coward's End can usually go off, and if I have a few untamed cards in my discard already, or if I have a few regrowths in hand, I'm not too scared because I know I can drop that Coward's End. Perhaps I have played War Drummer to bounce all of my Brobnar cards back to hand to hide them from the Coward's End, and then play them out. So there are a few ways for me to know I can recover from the Coward's End, either with War Drummer to not let the creatures get destroyed or play yeah. my regrowths if I know I have them or that they're coming because there are three so I know I'll see them soon if I haven't yet so as long as I know where I am with how much of my deck I've drawn and what I need to get done to beat this opponent the coward's end can be a very helpful tool but it I would probably say I discard it half the time uh, that I do end up seeing it. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's one of those that it takes time and it takes those reps to work out in any given deck. When do you need to play this? What are the situations where it's going to harm you more when you play it? So very much an interesting one for, mm-hmm. for, for players listening to this to, to kind of go away and think about. If you could include any other card in this deck, uh, what would it be? I think I would include most creatures from Mars that aren't uh, Quick Slick's Plague Master, which is one card I have in this deck, which is quite often not nearly as helpful as I would like it to be. I would probably put in 
Honestly, I would probably put in one more tunk, is what I would do. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Quick slicks, Plague Master being the creature that has a fight reap effect, deal three damage to each human creature, and um, whilst that's nice and deals a little bit maybe against some of the Sanctum human knights, it is dependent on creatures being human traded, and... Whilst that's likely to be a persistent threat throughout the future of Keyforge, it's 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 not dependable, is it? <laughs> it is not, especially with two hunting witches, Mushroom Man and Witch of the Eye, all of which have that human trait tagged to them. So once they're on the board, the Plague Master, uh, it really turns off if it was even on to begin with. The only time it is useful is when there's a handful of sanctum or other humans out on the board and i don't have any of my humans which is fairly rare and half the time that three damage won't even take out that creature that it's hitting unless it's a dexter or something small but things like doc bookton or sequius from yeah yeah from sanctum all have more than three power so while it's lovely to skip the armor and might help me take them out later it doesn't end up actually removing the threats no no. On on the side of the threats that this deck really doesn't want to see in a matchup, what are the most challenging matchups for this deck? Are there any matchups that this deck really can't handle? Hmm. Well, I haven't taken it for a spin against Worlds Collide yet, and I anticipate that will be, uh, that could be. <laughs> you preempted my next question. <laughs> I anticipate those could be an issue, but we will discover that as we, as we charge forward okay. here. Okay. Um, uh, the classic Amber Rush with the right removal, I would say Amber Rush with the disc support house, which is fairly common, can give this deck an issue if it has hysteria and fear or hand of dis, all those things that can directly remove cards from my battle line. Those end up being fairly yeah. difficult if the deck is both doing that and amber rushing because at that point they are both rushing for amber and they usually have in hand a answer to my cards whether it's a little bit of direct damage from hand or or a direct removal card in disc if they're able to pick and choose which of my creatures they are taking out at which times and just do that and make those calls very efficiently and i can't keep these creatures out that becomes very difficult it turns off the key abduction um as long as they keep some creatures around in addition to their removal cards, they're able to deal with the hunting witches or witch of the eyes as well, yes. even if I'm regrowthing them. And my Brabnar board isn't usually big enough to go toe to toe with their creatures as there's only five of them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I am often just not seeing enough of them early enough to establish a board. So those decks that have that very targeted removal in addition to the burst certainly give this deck a run for its money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's a challenge for Brobnar, isn't it? Because those best Brobnar lineups are the ones that you see lots and lots of creatures in. But as you've said, with this deck, actually some of those support cards have been really helpful for you about making the most of Mars and of Untamed. So maybe Brobnar showing a new lease of life and uh, a new future future direction for themselves here. Oh, yes, yes, I think so. It's a, a non-standard list that makes me appreciate what they do, even if even if it doesn't look like a competitive list at the start. Um, with a lot of repetition and practice, that list can actually hold its own at a, at a decently high level, which I'm quite happy with. 
Absolutely. And you mentioned adaptive earlier. Is this potentially a format that we're going to be seeing this deck in in the future? Oh, this would be the first deck I would take to an adaptive match. People will see it and know that the untamed is strong and that the Mars is good. They will be baffled by the Brabnar. Uh, most people would, I think. But I think the strongest reason I would take this to adaptive is because I would know how to dismantle it. <laughs> when my Absolutely. opponent and I switch decks, I will be looking for all of those tools and I know exactly the strongest plays my opponent has because I've played this deck for so long. So I think if nothing else, this deck, while not very difficult to play, it's tricky to find everything that makes it shine in all of the edge cases, especially with Brobnar, so... If I have an opponent's deck and I can ID some standard tools that that deck has to deal with this one, um, I would I would hope I have an edge. Of course, I go up against very strong opponents locally on a regular basis, so I would certainly be ha- have a run for my money there. And I and I'm sure some of those opponents will have been taking notes throughout listening to this episode on on how they can maybe <laughs> dismantle it or bid the right number of chains for it. Well, consider that a bonus for anybody who is uh, <laughs> listening to your podcast, uh, a free bonus That's there. A, one, one of the many, one of the many. What can we say? So, Zach, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, have you on the cast, and I wish you well in all of your exploits, uh, forging keys, and exploring the new world of Keyforge. Well, thank you so much, Ed. It was a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to hearing all the interviews of the lovely Archons to come after me. Absolutely, absolutely. We are still getting things sorted out, but it looks like our next interview is going to be with the one, the only, Brad Andres. Uh, So super excited to have Brad on the podcast as well. To our listeners, have fun exploring Worlds Collide. There is a lot to discover. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us now on Instagram as well. Or you can email us questions at discoverkeyforge at gmail.com. But most importantly, If you think a friend would enjoy this podcast, please do help them to discover it. Thank you very much.